The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. Scott, thank you for that that uh, profound lead-in. I wish I could be with you all. I would have been there, but for the uh, COVID quarantine they imposed in in Korea. I'll jump uh, right into my my paper, which is entitled "Calvin on Divine Love and Litigation: Two Approaches to Christian Legal Theory." I, I want to start just with two texts: First uh, John four ten through eleven. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And the second text is from the the, uh, end of the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, when he's introducing how we should understand law. He writes, it is of no slight importance to us to know how lovingly God has provided courts and laws and magistrates for mankind so that greater zeal for piety may flourish in us to attest our gratefulness. So in this paper, I want to connect these these two ideas in these two texts. In particular, I want to convince you that one goal for Christian legal theory, for how Christians try to understand law, is promoting what Calvin calls piety. And uh, piety means love. Calvin defines piety as that personal reverence and love that we, we have for God, which we gain from our sense of God's love for us. That's what the first text from John referred to. God loves us first, and then we respond and understand love. We awaken uh, this piety in in people, Calvin says, by showing how in Christ and in the Father's good and providential government of the world, God can be known to love us. So in this paper, I want to do three things. First, I want to talk a little bit to distinguish the goal of promoting piety in ourselves and others as a goal of legal theory. And I want to distinguish that from another really important part of legal theory, Calvin says, which is preparing people to do justice by convincing them about what God's standards, natural laws standards, universal equity requires all governments and, and people to do so that they can they can give to each other what is their their due. So having distinguished those two goals promoting piety from understanding justice, looking at societies, making judgments about whether they're just or not. I want to illustrate how how Calvin uses this distinction in relation to his teaching on litigation. And just really quickly, Calvin first explains that our ability uh, to take a case to court is a great gift from God, uh, because by it, uh, if we are being abused by a wicked person, we can appeal to the magistrate for for help. Or if somebody accuses us falsely, we have a chance to defend ourselves in in court. Courts and the openness of courts to litigation, both civil and criminal, is, is very good because otherwise we're left to our own power. But when the courts are open, the magistrate says, I don't know all the evils of the land. Come and tell me. And I will do justice for you according to the laws that I've been uh, that I've provided. And Calvin says we can be we can be sure that law is a good gift because we're given assurances in the Scripture that God has a special care and providence with respect to uh, rulers. Uh, he assures us over and over again that there are His gifts to us for good. Although Calvin admits in a very challenging section, the very last section of the Institutes, uh, that we have to be open to the idea that magistrates might not give us justice, they might do injustice to us, but that God has also assured us in that context that it's being done to uh, chastise us for our sins, to draw us to repentance. 
or uh, not because we need to repent, but because we need uh, discipline. So after he has uh, argued and tried to convince that litigation is good, then he lays out a resulting standard of, of justice. He says, if law is such a good gift, if it is so pure in God's intent for us, uh, we should be very careful how we approach it. In fact, we should treat our approach to the magistrate as if we were approaching God. We shouldn't ask anything of a magistrate that we wouldn't ask directly of God. And as if we were standing before God, uh, we should only act in a spirit of love. We shouldn't come to, to God with anything that uh, is unloving or or hateful. We should be motivated by the public goods for which the, the law is established. And the reasons that God gave us the good gift of laws and litigation, which is so that we might lead pious, holy, uh, and quiet lives. Now, interestingly, as, a, as an ethical standard, this is really commonplace in history. Uh, in Plato's laws, he says, uh, you know, if, if people are abusing litigation and they're doing it out of a spirit of contention or, or sophistry, uh, then they should be punished. Uh, the, the Stoics, uh, Plutarch, uh, made writing about how to litigate without losing your temper, without being angry, without being greedy a basic measure of a, a philosophical disposition of having proper temperance. Uh, the standard that we should be loving in litigation, as Paul says, uh, is really very, very common. Every society has a measures to uh, and denounces the abuse of uh, litigation. What's really unique about uh, Paul's uh, Calvin's position is that he says, Really, the only possible way to do this is by being pious. That man is, is set up so that when we end up in courts, we get angry, we get worried, we do bad things. Uh, but only the man who is secure in the providence of God goes to the magistrate, trusting that it's ruled by the providence of God and, and experiencing litigation as an encounter with a good God. And we know that because we've already praised the laws in the ways Calvin has, uh, can survive litigation without falling into anger. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, but third thing I'm going to talk about is, uh, a, a interesting suggestion, uh, Calvin has that, that I've, I've, uh, already noted that prayer, what we can pray to God about, is a really good guide to litigation. Calvin says, look, when you, when you come to the magistrate, you're coming to the agent or the vicar of God. The magistrate is called in his own uh, vocation to do what he does for God's sake, to do what he does to be God's agent, to decide cases as if God were over his shoulder and he were deciding them in the same way that God would. And so we abuse the magistrate if we come to him and, and ask anything that we wouldn't be willing to ask of God. If you wouldn't come to God and say, I hate my neighbor and I covet his belongings and therefore I want to win this lawsuit, then you shouldn't ask that of the, the neighbor. And this raises some very interesting questions that I'll refer to about the role of anger in litigation, uh, whether we can be angry in prayer, whether we can pray as Christians the imprecatory prayers given that in some sense uh, we have given over uh, vengeance and retaliation to, to God and the magistrate. But the, the primary suggestion that, that, that Paul, uh, Calvin makes is very wonderful, which is that all of your experience praying is a preparation for pleading before God's magistrate. Okay, with that as, as introduction, I'll, I'll begin with the, the, the first uh, element, trying to distinguish between promoting piety and preparing ourselves to understand what is just uh, in, in law. So uh, let's ask how Christians should do legal theology, how we should combine our theology and law, and why. 
For example, suppose Christians believe that love between men is in some sense the standard of justice, and we think that our uh, sense of, of love is subsequent to our knowledge of God's love. How is that part of my life as a, a Christian, believing in God's love as primary, how is that involved when I'm doing legal analysis? I'm, I'm reading laws, I'm interpreting them, or I'm in court pleading. How does my legal analysis make me more grateful, more reverent and loving to God, pious in Calvin's sense, and thereby prepare me to be more trusting of myself to his providence and thereby more loving to men. I think uh, my own goal when I, I began as a, as a Christian and, and a lawyer was fairly uh, reactive. It, I really was just interested in making sense of of uh, how the Bible, uh, how the, the society I was in seemed so unjust to me. I, I, the courts say that uh, abortion should be legalized. It's a fundamental human right. I believe that uh, abortion is murder. The courts say today um, marriage as a fundamental expression of human personality must be extended to marriages between uh, two men, but the Bible clearly teaches me it's between a man and a, a woman. I thought about uh, theology predominantly as giving me a, a compass to judge what was right and wrong in the, the claims that were being made uh, as I was studying in, in law school and reacting to politics in, in society. And this kind of focus um, made me uh, turn to the, the natural law tradition uh, because I wanted to persuade people that what I thought was right from the Bible was was right in their own terms. I wanted a a, a language that would be persuasive for everyone. Uh, it led me more toward the uh, new natural law schools of Finnis and Griset and George, and away from the more theologically oriented uh, schools of, of natural law, more toward the a Grodian and early modern rationalist schools of natural law, because then you could dispense with, with any uh, natural theological argument or, or that sort of thing. So I started out as a Christian wanting to follow my Christian faith, but I, I fair, ended up with a, a fairly uh, secular, you might say, view to how I should think and analyze a law. And when I practiced law many years ago, that was sort of the, the standard I applied to myself. I had a, an objective ethic of law from the natural law tradition, but it, it didn't really uh, connect with my faith in, in Christ. And a lot of this was good. I, I like the natural law uh, tradition. I, I, I support that, that kind of, of thinking. And I was thinking about the truth uh, that God has revealed in, in nature, and that's and that's good. Uh, but there was something important missing from my theology of law. And I eventually learned what it was from Calvin. And that was this additional element of uh, how do I understand the law as a good thing given to me by God that makes me pious, that makes me love God? How do I investigate the law, not just as a question of what's right and what's wrong? That's super important. Or how do we persuade people or know what's right and wrong? Really important. But Calvin wants to add something to that. Here's how uh, Calvin uh, puts it when he is introducing the last section of the Institutes. This is uh, book four, uh, chapter 20, section one of the Institutes, way at the end, little section at the end of the, the Institutes. Finally, uh, having set forth the kingdom of God, he turns to the kingdom of, of man and civil government. And this is what he writes. Since we've established above that man is under a twofold government, and since we have elsewhere discussed in sufficient length the kind that resides in the solar inner man and pertains to eternal life, now, this is the place to say something about the other kind of government, which pertains only to civil justice and outward morality. For although this topic seems by nature alien to the spiritual doctrine of faith, that's sort of how I went in life. I, I disconnected uh, my thinking about law from, from 
from spiritual faith. Uh, in what follows, uh, I will show that I'm right in joining them. In fact, that necessity compels me to do so. And this is especially true because from one side, insane and barbarous men, which is Calvin's term for Baptists, amusingly, furiously strive to overturn this divinely established order of government. While on the other side, the flatterers of princes immoderately praising their power, i.e. Machiavels, do not hesitate to set civil government against all order of God himself. And unless both of these evils are checked, purity of faith will perish. Now, what Calvin is describing here is just what I spent uh, well, many years focusing on, which is uh, what are what are what are the measures that we can we can determine by which we can know that law is authorized against one group of men, and know that when God authorized civil government, He did not leave it without checks and measures and standards, but but constrained constrained it by His own laws, the laws of nature, universal equity. So that's good. He, re- he begins with, with what I began with in my story. But then he adds something. And this is the next paragraph. He says, besides, it's of no mere slight importance for us to know how lovingly God has provided in this respect for mankind. That greater zeal for piety may flourish in us to attest our gratefulness. So he says, first thing we want to do is we want to. We want to to teach what the Bible teaches, which is against the Anabaptists, God has authorized government, and against the Machiavellians, that just because you're in government doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to do. There, there's a higher law, and you're you're constrained by it. But then he says there's a there's a second part, and this part of Christian legal theory is concerned with making people love God by explaining what's so great about law, by by pointing out to them that law is not just a, a matter of, well, law, but it's a providential gift to us. Now, these are actually related goals because Calvin says, how can we be persuaded ever that God gave us law for our good if uh, if these uh, laws are unstructured, if they they're unauthorized or if they have no limits on them. Uh, he says, no, actually, the reason why governments are so praiseworthy in part is precisely because the basic duty of a ruler is to make his government so that it stands as an image of God's providence. This is what he says in uh, chapter 20, ver- uh, uh, subsection 6. He says, the duty of rulers in some is to remember that they're vicars or agents of, of God. And this is a really remarkable passage. With a duty to represent in themselves to man an image of divine providence, of protection, goodness, benevolence, and justice. Rulers are supposed to guide themselves by making government and decisions that will look people will look at and say praise god a loving god rules and if they were independent of god if if they weren't limited by natural law and by the proper ends of of government uh, how could we look upon them as gifts from god and increase in our piety because of them because of them so these two goals work together now, Calvin was speaking a little ironically when he said that uh, it's just it's a matter of, of no slight I- importance. Um, it, it's good to remember here that when the, the Institutes were first published in 1536, they were titled as a, a sum of piety, summa pietatis, not a summa theologica, as Aquinas wrote, uh, but they were, were represented to contain the whole sum of piety. And I like this subtitle, a work very well worth reading by all persons zealous for piety. It's a very nice, nice subtitle. Uh, the, the Institutes are, of course, about 
theology, the knowledge of God is a, a central uh, concern in them. But for Calvin, our knowledge of, of God or our knowledge of God's relation to law is, is only important to the extent that it produces piety. It's only real knowledge if it does. And he, he says this. I'm going to read a long passage from him on the relationship between theology and, and piety. This is from book one, uh, section two, subsection two, chapter two, sub, uh, section two. Here's he's explaining his whole project in the in the institutes and you'll see that promoting piety is chief calvin we shall not say that properly speaking god is known for there is no religion or piety it will not suffice simply to hold that there is one we ought to honor and adore unless we are persuaded that he's the fountain of every good and that we must seek nothing elsewhere than in him this I take to mean that not only does God sustain the universe as he once founded it, not only does he regulate it by his wisdom, preserve it by his goodness, and especially rule mankind by his righteousness and, and judgment, civil governments, bear with it in his mercy, watch over it by his protection, but also that nowhere else can any wisdom, light, righteousness, power, rectitude, or general, genuine truth be found which does not flow from him and of which he is the cause. And from knowing this, we may learn to await and seek all these things from him and to thankfully to ascribe them to him once they are received. For this sense of the powers of God is for us a fit teacher of piety from which religion is born. And then he defines piety. I call piety that reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. So this is why Calvin thinks it's of no slight importance that we show that the courts, the laws, the, the magistrates are good gifts from, from God. We, we can't be said to know God unless our knowledge of God is one that, that causes piety, uh, that causes a reverence joined with the, the love of, of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. If we do not know that the civil government is a, a benefit from God, but for example, we think really uh, it's Promethean fire. Man, man made something, as Nebuchadnezzar said. This is our our invention. This is something we do. It's an independent source of good, not given to us by God. We can't be pious, Calvin says, because. We want to love God with our, our whole hearts, minds, and souls. But if we, we think there really is an independent source of good, and government's a very great good, well, then we won't love God uh, fully. And we see this narrative all the time in the scriptures where uh, people begin to treat their rulers as, as idols and to split their love from, from God. Now, there's something uh, tricky uh, about this. Only if we believe that good and bad rulers are nonetheless mere agents of God by blessing and ch chastising us, uh, but always mere functionaries of God through his providence. Only then may we learn to await and seek all these things from him and thankfully to ascribe them to him uh, once received. So, uh, Calvin's mission at the end of showing that the civil government is a good gift from God is an important part of his overall program, which, of course, the most important part deals with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the providence of the Father in, in all the world. But he has to uh, attack uh, those who deny that government is a good gift from God, because otherwise there's an important part of our life. Uh, for which we wouldn't be giving God thanks and praise and hence full love. Okay, so let's get into uh, uh, his treatment of litigation.
This begins in Book 4, Chapter 20, uh, Section uh, 17. And Calvin has already accomplished this, he hopes, with respect to magistrates and laws. He's tried to show that the magistrates are sent by God, agents appointed for our, our good, and that laws belong to the same category as, as magistrates. And in section 17, he, he writes, it now remains for us to examine what we'd said for the, the, the last place. What usefulness do the laws, judgments, and magistrates have for Christians? And this is sort of the, the wrap-up, because he said, okay, magistrates are good, laws are good, but now he has to deal with an objection, which is some Christians say, all of these things, nevertheless, are useless for us. They're not good gifts from God, because we can't use them, because uh, we're too holy to use them, because they're inappropriate for our, our status. They're just evil things for evil, evil people. Um, some have alleged, Calvin says, that laws and magistrates are not useful for Christians because Christians, quote, cannot piously call upon them for help inasmuch as it is forbidden to them to take revenge, to sue before a court or go to law. And this would undercut piety because if they're not good, we can't give God praise for them. They can't increase our love for God. Uh, we can't understand them in, in that way. And, and Calvin thinks he has a, a knockdown argument for this. He says, Paul told us in, in Romans 13:4 that the magistrate, the ruler, is, quote, God's servant to do you good. And then he says, and moreover, we're supposed to pray for him, not so that he can do good things for other people. He quotes First uh, Timothy 2, 2. He says, rather so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and, and holiness. Uh, given that these things are revealed to be for our good, the ruler is revealed specifically to be for Christians' good. Calvin says, how could that be if we were unable to enjoy that benefit? We show no impiety to God by gratefully accepting a gift he's told us is for us. And in fact, you'd be an impiety when God has given us a gift to turn away from it. If the magistrate is God's agent, has opened courts to Christians and said, I don't know all the injustices of the land. But according to the laws, but if according to the laws which I have I have defined injustice by, you can come to me and inform me of wrongs against those standards, then I'll provide a remedy. If you're accused, I will not condemn you without your opportunity to appear in court and defend yourself against accusations. I'll investigate the accusations, hear you out. Paul says that opportunity is a great gift from God. He sent his representative, he's told us, so that we can have that opportunity. And we should accept it, accept it piously, gratefully, with a sense of greater love for God, but we should expect it. Uh, we should accept it. So uh, that really is uh, how Calvin dismisses the main part of the, of the argument. Uh, but, but then he, he says, don't misunderstand me. This is in uh, book four, chapter 20, 17 through 18. He says there are two different kinds of, of people who make mistakes with respect to, to how they approach the law. And the first kind apply the wrong standard to, to litigation, and they also uh, act impiously in this regard. They think that the, the government's laws alone set the standard for litigation, how we should behave in it, not God. We don't owe him any duties of piety when we're in it. So here, here's what Calvin says in this section. I have to do with, deal with two kinds of men. First, there are very many who so boil with rage for litigation that they're never at peace with themselves unless they're quarreling with others. They carry on their lawsuits with bitter and deadly hatred and insane passion for revenge and hurt, and they pursue them with implacable obstinacy, even to the rule of their adversaries. And meanwhile, 
to avoid being thought to be doing something wrong, they defend their perversity of their attitude, their hate, on the pretense of legal procedure. That is to say, what I'm doing is just because I'm pleading according to the to the laws. But if one is permitted to go to law with a brother, one is not therewith allowed to hate him or be seized with mad desire to harm him or to hound him relentlessly. So now, having said that, Calvin is going to show that, that some use of litigation like this is itself an impiety on the part of participants. Not of a violation of the justice of law, not necessary to the nature of, of litigation. The approach of the hateful and contentious to the court is doubly impious, he, he says, because it's a result of not respecting God's agent and hence God himself. And it's also productive of impiety because lots of people who see the courts filled with hateful people, vengeful people, think that that's the nature of, of litigation rather than an impious approach to it. Christians who litigate unmotivated by love, he says, act impiously because they take as their guide human law alone and their own tendency to contention and show no respect for the purpose that God has given, which is to give us peaceful, quiet lives and all godliness and holiness, and no respect for what God is doing in the courts, Calvin writes, where hearts are filled with malice, envy, wrath, seeking revenge, desiring contention, so that in any way love is impaired in them, then the whole court action of even the most just cause cannot be but impious. This is a really remarkable, r- remarkable thing. Uh, I mean, this is the, this is the, I actually think Calvin is responding. Uh, he's playing with the Euthyphro dialogue here. If you're familiar with the Euthyphro dialogue, it's a dialogue where, where uh, Socrates stops a man on the, the way to court who's going to prosecute his, his father uh, for murder because of an accidental death of, of a slave and is boasting of his piety in doing what the laws say. He says the greatest piety is just following the law. And Socrates says, I'm confused. So you think everything pious is also just? Euthyphro says, yeah. But do you also think that all that is just is pious? In other words, maybe you have a claim against your your father. But is it pious for you to be the one bringing it? And this is uh, Calvin's entry into this uh, very old and wonderful uh, debate is Calvin clearly teaches justice is not a guide to piety. If you've, if you've gone to court and you are absurd in the first sense that I talked about Christian legal theory, that this is a just cause of action, that's great. But that doesn't mean that you're behaving piously. Justice, according to the, the objective standards of right, is not a piety. Calvin says no to the Euthyphro question, where love is at all impaired, even the most just cause cannot be, uh, cannot but be impious. Everything just is not pious, because not everything that is just shows a, a love for your brother or a reverence for God. And for the first question that's asked, he, he concludes later that to be uh, to be just, you also have to be pious. This is at the conclusion of this section. To sum up, love will give every man the best counsel. Everything undertaken apart from love, all disputes that go beyond it, are both unjust and impious. Human justice alone is not the measure of rightful Christian conduct in litigation, just as raison d'etat, Calvin has said, are not the measure of rightful Christian rule. Christian must relate, Christians must relate to the rights that God has given to Christians through magistrates, gifts to commence or defend legal actions, in the exact same way they would to any worldly gifts that we receive by uh, providence. 
Calvin says, this principle must be set for all Christians, that a lawsuit, however just, can never be rightly prosecuted by any man unless he treats his adversary with the same love and goodwill as if the business under controversy were already amicably settled and composed. So I get the love part, okay? Calvin says you have, you have two aspects of, of the standard. What it means to be loving to somebody, that's a standard summary of Christian moral duty and attitudes. But the other thing he says is, you have to treat the litigation as if it's not, as if it's already happened. You should, you should go into court with such absolute trust in God's providence and faith that you are as peaceful as if you've already gotten a verdict in your favor. Because Calvin says, if you believe in the fullness of God's providence, you have. Um, he, he's also, and, and this is partially because it comes right after the discussion in 1 Corinthians 6 that, that Calvin, I think, was reading uh, when he was studying issues of, of litigation. Uh, he also is, is, is playing off of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.29 when he's uh, trying to tell people how to relate to worldly goods. From now on, he says, those who have wives should live as if they had none. And those who mourn as if they did not. And those who are happy as if they were not. And those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is what uh, Calvin, I, I think, after much contemplation of this passage, means that that if we're loving God, if we're, we're trusting in his providence, if we're loving our neighbor as, as ourselves, the, the outcome of that is we, we treat litigation, the good that we hope for it, as if it's not. We, we have a, a, a type of separation from it. We, we have this good, but we, we don't have it. This is really an attitude to, to temperance and composure of those who use the things of this world. We should use the things of this world. We should have and buy and, and marry and mourn and be happy. But we should not forget that this world is, is passing away and it's begun in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that the world will, will, will meet its, its end in his judgment. If we are to be wronged by our opponent's conduct in litigation or by an unjust sentence of the, of the judge, we're not to be dismayed because all the values of this world are being reevaluated in the goods we have in Christ. So uh, Calvin denotes, devotes the, the whole next section of the whole last section of the, of the institutes in his treatment of civil government to dealing with unjust judgment, unjust actions, persecution, from uh, rulers. Uh, he says rulers are supposed to be, this is uh, book four, uh, 2024. Uh, rulers are, are supposed to be so good that they present an image to us of God. But most of them are, are such uh, disgraces that people can discern. I'm quoting here. They discern no image of uh, no appearance of the image of God which ought to have shown in the magistrate. They see no trace of that minister sent by God who had been appointed to praise the good and to punish uh, the evil. And he says, um, you know, this is the Christian life, which is uh, an important part of, of providence that we can only understand once we, we believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the life to come, uh, and the final judgment, uh, is that, that we meet uh, all the difficulties of life, nevertheless as signs of God's uh, favor to us. He quotes Romans 5 in, in this regard. Since we've been justified through faith, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. 
you know the rest of this because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Um, this is the kind of composure that a, a Christian of faith has when he goes into to litigation. Either I'm going to get a just judgment and I will be I will be thrilled or I'm going to be treated unjustly and I will rejoice. As as we're told to in Romans five, because I'll know that this is discipline from God, which will produce uh, hope. Uh, I urge you to, to read that that uh, section uh, it's a long section and i can't summarize it all but it is calvin's great effort uh, to help uh, reconcile us to the many evils of of civil government and to to regard them nevertheless as a providential act from uh, from god now uh just in conclusion brad how am i doing on time Yeah. Not, did you say I can't hear you? Not good. Yeah. Um, let me give you 20, 25 minutes, including Q&A at this point. You want me to wrap it up in, in five minutes? No, I said, sorry. <laughs> I can give you 25 minutes, including Q&A. So it depends how much that you want. Okay. Well, I'll try to wrap it up in, in, uh, in 10 minutes, and then we can have some, some, some discussion. So I, I just want to uh, uh, I, I conclude in this by by saying um, when when Calvin treats the the questions of uh, Paul's uh, discussion of litigation in First Corinthians six, um, he is somewhat uh, dismayed because um, he says. Uh, it's really difficult to understand how we can litigate without any any anger or desire for uh, retaliation. And his basic solution to this is to say that, well, we, we don't ask for retaliation. Uh, we ask uh, God to retaliate. We are, we're like the psalmists who say, Lord, see how I suffer. Uh, please uh, deliver me. But this is from his his uh, commentary on, on 1 Corinthians. He says this problem of, of whether we can even go to God and ask for judgment as Christians or, or whether the way in which through Christ we have, we have removed our hearts from a vengeance and a desire for retaliation. He says it's surprising this question has not been more carefully handled by ecclesiastical writers. Augustine has bestowed much more pains with it than, than others and has come nearer the mark, but even he is somewhat obscure. Uh, those who aim at greater clearness in their statements tell us that we must distinguish between public and private revenge. For while the magistrate's vengeance is appointed by God, those who have recourse to it do not take vengeance in their own hands or seek it, but have only a, an appeal to God as the avenger. Uh, this is true, and it's said judiciously and appropriately, but we must go a step further. What if it not be allowable even to desire vengeance from God, then on the same principle, it were not allowable to have recourse to the magistrate for vengeance? I acknowledge that a Christian man is prohibited from taking vengeance, but must he not even exercise it by the the magistrate, nor even desire it? If therefore a Christian man wishes to prosecute his rights at law so as not to offend God, he must above all things take heed that he doesn't bring into court any desire of revenge, any corrupt affection of the mind or, or anger. In this, love is the best uh, regulator. And then he, he concludes a, a long discussion of, of of why he's having this conversation by, by saying that he believes that without anger, uh, we can come into court so that the audacity of the wicked may be repressed by a pure and uncorrupted, and, and here's his alternative word for anger, 
by a pure and uncorrupted zeal, which could not be affected if we were not allowed to subject them to legal punishments. So uh, Calvin really wrestles with this, this question, and he connects it to what we can ask God. We can ask a magistrate anything we can ask God. And so a, a, a wonderful thing that Calvin sets up here is our entire prayer life is a preparation for legal pleading in a pious way. Everything we know about prayer teaches us about litigation, and it sets a standard for it. What we ask of a, a magistrate, we ask of God through that magistrate. And what we can't ask of God, we can't ask of the magistrate. And the very attitude that we should have in court is the attitude that we're constantly practicing when we pray about people persecuting us, about the bad things people are doing from us, about the deliverance we need from, from people or accusations. All aspects of, of prayer uh, are a preparation for the lawyer in pleading. And I would say, vice versa, all acts of pious pleading before courts are a preparation for prayer, if not a prayer themselves. Uh, my own solution to, to Calvin's uh, problem is to suggest that people read the, the, the 22nd Psalm, which is what Christ cries out from the, the cross. Uh, we certainly can say this to the magistrate. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry out. There's no answer. But I know you're enthroned as the Holy One, and you, our fathers, put their trust, and they trusted you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. I think that's what Calvin has in mind. Christ describes, as the, the psalm goes on, all the difficulties, all the wrongdoing, how he's abused, how he's despised and mocked and scorned. But his, his constant refrain is, God, I know you'll deliver me. I know you'll do a righteousness. And I think that's our, our model of, of pleading and a, a model of prayer. Thank you. All right, so if there's any questions, just kind of yell as loud as you can on the screen. Okay, I have a question before, but I'll just ask one. First, thank you very much, Eric. That was very, very helpful. We've talked about this before, and this is very, I brought a lot together for me. Here's a question. In terms of uh, civil litigation, the American system, court, uh, would a Christian ever be warranted to seek punitive damages? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and, you know, living in a civil law country, I, I feel like I spent half my life explaining how it's possible that in, in, in civil courts, we could have punitive, uh, punitive damages. Uh, as you know, uh, you know, the question of, of what exactly the significance of punitive damages are, are they kind of a equitable cheat by which you give court expenses to people? Uh, is there a, a, a public goal of, of punitive damages where, where we've decided to allow a, a deterrent effect uh, beyond uh, the right of the, of the plaintiff? Um, whether there are public goals which could explain this. Calvin says, look, if you're in, in court, and you're you're fulfilling a, a public duty. If you're trying to protect the public, you absolutely can uh, seek not just punitive damages. You could seek uh, criminal sanctions against a murderer to protect the community. So if you if you think of punitive damages not as vengeance damages, but if you think of punitive damages as uh, a part of the civil process by which we we allow a deterrent effect to to occur. I don't, I don't see why under Calvin's view you, you couldn't, you couldn't possibly do that. Um, of course, if you're seeking punitive damage because you hate the person and you're vengeful, uh, that would be, be wrong. Um, but I, I think, I think we could imagine, uh, ideas of seeking punitive damages that were, were right and those that were certainly wrong for, for Calvin. And again, this is the, on the question side of, 
of piety. Um, your, your attitude and your motivations in, in doing this are going to, to matter a lot. Does that, that help address uh, it? But then my follow-up would be that if we are vindicating a public right, public justice, shouldn't we turn over punitive damages to the public, donate them to the state or some organization that does public good as opposed to keeping them for myself? Yeah, I mean, as, as, you, as you well know, uh, there's some account of, of punitive damages where, where they, they serve not just a deterrent effect. Um, this is a common refrain on the intellectual property side where I used to, to litigate, uh, but, but the additional measures of damage uh, deal with the fact that the, the straight remedy is, is rarely sufficient um, if you don't recover attorney's fees, if, if you, uh, you know, consider how many cases get lost, uh, it's rarely sufficient. But I think you obviously make a good, a good point. The direction of your, your question, I think, is one for people to, to wrestle with in, in conscience, which is um, if, if this is a, something which is justified by the public good, how can I, how can I keep that money? Um, maybe after you pay off your, your attorney, which I believe is always a good idea to pay your attorney, um, <laughs> you should donate the rest of the, of the money to the, the public. Question, sir. I don't know if you can hear me. I can't, I can't actually, if you could come a little closer, I think I might hear you more clearly. So my name is Sam Kluwer. I'm an attorney, a big fan of Handong University. I've met a lot of your students there. Oh my uh, goodness. Thank you. Yeah, Montgomery, Alabama. Um, Chief Justice Tom Parker, you probably know. Of course. A, Say hi to him for me. Thank you. Uh, so my, my question is, my mind's racing how to apply this, and I work in child welfare, and so we, we run into what we would consider a lot of unjust rulings. Um, uh, so is, is do you think there's a place in Calvin's doctrine, what you just described, for recusing or you know, ask, asking a judge to recuse himself because it's, he, he's got a conflict of interest or he's acted so you know improperly or, or how do you appeal a judge and, and say this judge is is you know the, the lower court has totally missed the ball I, I think the answer is you do that in a respectful way and there's some line there but you know, I'm kind of giving lots of questions teeing you up but is there a place to you know publicly expose a judge for a magistrate for further bad acts and how do we how do we balance all that yeah great question yeah i mean if you if you uh if you think of appellate litigation we have one of the best biblical warrants for appellate litigation of, and paul points to it several, uh, calvin points to to paul's appeal to to caesar from the, the court of, of, of festus as as a, a great example of the fact that you can litigate uh, several times. He goes, I mean, clearly you can litigate because Paul does it. He, he files an appeal. And, um, and so I would say, you know, is, is completely uh, appropriate. Uh, Calvin would be very, very, very uh, strong. And you, you should read the last section of the institutes in saying, it's critical that we never look on, on the man, the sinful man of a, a legal office but that we show reverence to him for the sake of, of the office, because whatever his failings, he's, he's God's agent. And whatever's happening in his failure to show forth the majesty and righteousness and providence that, that God wants rulers to do, it's, it has a providential purpose. And uh, this is a very hard part of, of Calvin's teaching, but very strong. He says, you know, we have to obey unjust rulers unless God has specifically commanded us to do something else. We certainly can appeal. If, if, if we can file a, a, a trial action, we can file an appellate action. If we can appeal from the, the right, the actions of an unjust man, we can appeal from a lesser magistrate to a, a higher magistrate. But in all of that, we have to act with love. We have to act as if we're before God. Now, if this is a man, you could you could pray to God and say, uh, God, I want to expose this man um, to the public. I want you to expose this man to the public as an incompetent. 
and I want you to do it by means of my appellate action, um, well, then you, you can do it in front of the appellate court. But you can't, you can't pray to God with hate in your heart. You can't, you can't pray to God, uh, I think, usually uh, for other people to be uh, humiliated. Uh, but maybe you can. I mean, that, that's a, a hard question. Calvin is not trying to answer all these questions. He's, he's trying to get us to, to think about what the standard of litigation is and why litigation is so good. And, you know, as balm for your soul, as encouragement for your soul, I would say you sound frustrated and discouraged a little bit. You should spend some time thinking about what a great gift it is to have courts where we can litigate it all about children's welfare, where, where the state takes any active interest, even if it's incompetent, but, but where, where uh, the state is taking an interest in, in children and, and protecting them. I mean, you have a great calling in what you're doing right now. And you should take time, Calvin says, to understand what you're doing according to its goodness and how what you can do is is doing good things for for children um even even if the magistrate's failing the the, the good you do is from him and the the discipline that you're receiving building you up in character and endurance and hope uh in these frustrating unjust rulings and nevertheless has a as a point in your life and and other people's lives you should believe that in in faith calvin says I have a, a quick question and hopefully Yes, sir, could you come closer? I it's a little distorted at that distance. I'm sorry. No, not a problem. Uh, so a question regarding the incongruence between the motivation and the justness of the act, right? So Calvin is telling us that we need to have the right motive in approaching the the judicial system, as well as have a just desire in the outcome. So the outcome versus the way that I do it. My question is what Looking at the three actors in a situation, the litigant, the attorneys, and the judge, what should happen when there is an incongruence between the reason but the just action? So someone's doing it in anger, not seeking maybe the welfare, but the reality is it's the right outcome. The outcome that they're seeking is the, is the just outcome. How should the litigants themselves approach it? How should attorneys who have to, you know, moderate this approach it? And then how should a judge who has to hear this uh, yeah. think about this variation? A great question. I and I, I I understand why you 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 talk about this in terms of motive and and outcome. I'm not. I mean, the motive in just litigation. If you're if you're suing someone for a just cause is justice. I mean, you are actually seeking justice. Calvin's point is is it's not enough to seek justice. Um, and, and maybe maybe this doesn't doesn't distinguish it enough. But even if you're motivated by justice and you're seeking a just outcome, it's still impious if you don't do it with a sense of of reverence and love for God and uh, resultant. Uh, love for your neighbor. Now, if you find a distinction there, great. If not, I, I get where you're where you're coming from. I understand your your characterization. Um, lots of societies, ancient Greek societies, um, as part of the legal system, judged the the uh, the impiety of uh, litigants, and it was a, a basic part of legal rhetoric. Um, that you had to both defend the justice of your cause and defend the piety of your bringing it. And if you read Demosthenes or if you read uh, Aristophanes plays like the Wasp, yes. uh, the Greeks, the, the original meaning of the term is sycophant, which means a, a fig discoverer or a fig shower. Um, and there's an interesting argument about whether that's a, a, a reference to showing, showing your privates uh, or to to ratting out people who are are um, importing figs, but in any case, um, everybody basically had to defend themselves from being what they call the sycophant, which is somebody who made their their living causing trouble through 
litigation. And um, they talked about this in terms of, of piety. It, it was not showing the right religious spirit. Even if your claim was just, uh, they judged that. And when Calvin was running the consistory in Geneva, they judged that too. Sometimes they would say, yeah, you have a just claim, uh, but um, the old Greek saying was, this is an argument over a, the ownership of a donkey's shadow. Um, you two ought to have settled this suit. And the only reason you're here is because of contentiousness. I'm throwing you out of court uh, because you're being impious. You're showing disrespect for the court in not settling this case. Our courts uh, uh, have, uh, you know, we had the, we used to in the common law have the old uh, crime of baratry promoting litigation. You could, you could sue someone not just for, for malicious prosecution or, or that sort of thing, but also for uh, baratry of stirring up litigation. And of course, we don't have that anymore, quite the contrary. Um, we have some limitations on, on bad faith uh, litigation. But I mean, this is part of the problem from Calvin's point of view. Calvin thinks courts should protect piety. So, I mean, the answer would depend on what legal system you're in. In our legal system, obviously, whether you're whether you're loving your your opponent is not how we measure your right to bring a lawsuit. Uh, but in lots of societies, um, suits were lost because you were clearly impious, even if you stated a legal claim. And um, I leave it I leave it to you to decide which is which is better. I mean, the main thing that Calvin is saying is each of us has a responsibility if we believe the magistrate is there for God to act the way we would before God. And before God, we wouldn't be stirred up with contention and greed and fear. Um, Christians would be, if we were in the presence of God, would be loving and peaceful. And, and that's the way we should be before the avenger. Our, the primary responsibility uh, for the litigants is, is to themselves. Uh, and the judge too has the same the same burden to act as God would act in the situation, which is another whole interesting question about about anger. By the way, um, does, does that did that help? Yes, that gives me more to think about. Thank you. I Good. Have Do we have time? Better? Yeah, one more. Uh, okay. So I just wanted to follow up on that. Scripture is filled with encouragements to hate what is evil. It seems almost impious not to have the right feelings toward evil. And I'm wondering, is there any room in Calvin's understanding for righteous indignation? Or must one become neutral in the courtroom? Yeah. I, I, the, there's a, uh, the, the question of the role of, of anger in Calvin is a very interesting one. Calvin is... is it, it, it spends a lot of time saying, I'm not like the Stoics. I believe in pity. I believe that you should be moved by pity. I believe pity is, is, is very good. And I, I don't think that being impassive and unemotional is, is good. But anger is, is really hard for him. And that's why I read that passage where he says, you can have zeal. You can be like Christ overturning the, the, the tables in the, the temple. Uh, where we're told that that was done out of zeal, but he wants to, he wants to make a very strong distinction between anger, desire for vengeance, and and zeal. Maybe zeal is focused on on the public good, and there's no personal feeling in it. Maybe a hate is appropriate where it's abstract hate of evil, but but not hate of of persons. Um, but but the the Calvin's treatment of, of emotions comes largely with respect to his doctrine of providence, where basically he says, look, the more you have faith in God and his providence, um, the more the more peaceful you get about things, the, the more the more loving you get about things. You feel you're, that you're in God's care and you meet disaster and you meet good fortune with the same confidence in in Christ. Um, it's a very controversial, his account of emotions is very controversial. And if you don't like it, Aquinas, you know, makes exactly the distinction you're talking about. He says, okay, we're, we're going to call the vice a desire for vengeance. 
but we're going to call good anger righteous indignation and you know it's measured against the right person in the right proportion well i'll i'll just conclude there and and just again i i think y'all if you i think i downloaded the the paper for you if if you don't have it maybe you can you can get it but i would really appeal to you to think about this a distinction between approaching laws as something where we're just trying to figure out what's right and wrong. That's really important. But but also we need to cultivate a, a knowledge of, of law that makes us loving to God, that makes us, when we deal with laws and, and courts, uh, not lose so much focus, not exclusively focus on what's wrong with them, uh, but but praise God for what's right for them, right when they give just verdicts, right when they discipline us or draw us to repentance. Um, I, it, it's transformed my life when I started really focusing on on uh, the knowledge we have of, of courts that make us love God. And I think that's a great way for, for lawyers to, to add to their objective knowledge of, of right and wrong, uh, as Calvin says. So thank you for your great questions. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Eric. So much. One more apology for the technology. Not at all. <laughs> Don't you worry. It happens all the time. Great Good to, to see have you. you. Blessings. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.